This is the Author Archive podcast. Today, featured author is Anne Zeber, a, a wonderful biographer. I've just been reading two of her books, rereading one of them. Anne, welcome. I've just read your book about Ethel Rosenberg, The Short Life and Great Betrayal of an American Wife and Mother. She's not a household name, but you've written a startling and upsetting book. How many years of your life went into that? That's the impossible question. You know the answer. To write a book like that, if if I'm being pretentious, you have to say it's all my life because I couldn't possibly have written that book when I was any younger. I first came across Ethel's story when I lived in New York. I was a young mother in my 20s, and I read the novel by E.L. Doctorow, and that was The Seed. It was called The Story of Daniel, and it was a fictionalized version. But that story stayed with me, and I formally started writing it in 2016. So, uh, you know, the, the, the truthful answer is five years, but honestly... It needed me to be much older than I was when I first came across this story. When you when you lit upon um, a subject, do you either have to be um, enamoured of them, repelled uh, by them? Do you have to have an emotional response to keep you doing it every day? No, I don't think it's the emotional response. And I don't think you need to like your subject. Uh, one or two of my subjects I really haven't particularly liked, but and Ethel is hard to like, but I think you do have to owe a duty of care, a responsibility. And I felt Ethel's pain, if that doesn't sound like awful therapy speak, but I really, really lived with Ethel for these last five years. And a, a number of things contributed to that. Perhaps I should say that um, although I live in England and Ethel's two sons who are now in their late 70s live in America, I immediately flew to see them to tell them I was doing it. I did not want to write an authorised book, but I wanted them to know. And the whole project was really at arm's length. And then I guess I had a couple of interviews before lockdown but also in that space, my own husband died. So I was really, really alone while I was writing it. And I'm not suggesting that my being alone in lockdown in a pandemic uh, as a grieving widow is like Ethel in Sing Sing. Nothing can compare to being in that cell. And I've been to Sing Sing and I've seen it with a death sentence hanging over you. But, But I do actually think that being on my own and isolated, somehow focused me on quite what a dilemma and how on Ethel was facing, how on earth she could have access to good advice, to legal advice. Her mother hated her and didn't come. She was barely allowed to see Julius, her husband, when he was brought to her, he was brought in a cage and they couldn't touch. So she really was, in isolation for two of those three years. She went to the electric chair. She suffered capital punishment. What was her crime? She was accused of conspiracy to commit espionage. 
Now, conspiracy, of course, is almost impossible to disprove. That's why that was the charge, because if if you're married and in a close relationship, of course, you talk to your husband. But um, let's be clear. It's not a crime to know. It's not a crime to approve. You're not even required um, to report spousal wrongdoing. The only crime is to have committed an overt act. Now, when Ethel was arrested three weeks after her husband, the Americans, or should I say the FBI, and they told the government, but um, so let's say the Americans for a convenient shorthand, knew that Julius was aspiring recruiter because they were decrypting or deciphering um, some secret messages which are known to history as the Venona cables. They did not want the world to know that they knew about the Venona cables because they thought they could pick up lots more people. But nonetheless, they made it clear to the judge one of many um, uh, reasons why this is such a, a mistrial that Julius was guilty. When Julius refused to confess or name names, they arrested Ethel three weeks later, quote unquote, as a lever. They knew that the evidence against her was weak, shaky at best, I quote, um, but they assumed that a woman of 37 with two children would confess to something whether she'd done it or not, and she never did. So that was the crime she was found guilty of, because as the deputy attorney general said at the end, she called our bluff. Yes, I read that. I mean, they went through all of this, hoping that she would give them more names and more details, and she just didn't. She didn't because she wasn't part of this ring, um, spy ring that Julius was busy recruiting. I, I'm absolutely clear Julius was involved in passing, probably not atomic secrets. He was probably out of the loop by then, but certainly military and industrial secrets through his friends. But Ethel was a mother and Ethel was completely consumed by trying to be a good mother, better than her own mother. And she was not part of this, even if she may have known one or two people, but she didn't come to the social meetings when they gathered. She was never going to name those names because that was her extraordinary sense of loyalty. Why, if they were going through this hell, would you put your best friends through this hell as well? So there was no way they were going to name names. How old were her two children when she was electrocuted? 10 and 6. So the state killed both parents of two boys, 10 and 6, and they knew what they were doing. Yes. Uh, according to the laws of the time, you could say Julius is guilty and I'm not going to get involved in condoning spying. He was passing secrets to the Russians at the time when the Russians were our allies in World War II. He believed that if they were our allies, they should have all the information that we have in order to better fight the war. I'm not going to justify that. That's what he thought. Um, but yes, the the government knew or the state that they had no evidence against Ethel, but they convinced themselves that because she was two and a half years older in this sort of garbled Nietzschean philosophy, she must be the master and Julius the slave. She was obviously the ringleader. 
I was accused the other day of um, ignoring the fact that Ethel was, quote unquote, a zealot. She was a communist. She believed in communism. And in 1936, when she joined the Communist Party, communism was the only way to defeat the Nazi dictator, Hitler, Mussolini, Franco in Spain. That's why so many people joined the Communist Party. It does not make her a zealot. When I was reading your book, there are certain things, details come, that make you breathe and it sort of takes your breath away. As you know, um, I worked with your late husband at Jazz FM and I know about that stuff. And the, one of the families that took on these two boys is the family of the guy who wrote the Billie Holiday song, Strange Fruit. Now, how yeah. on earth do you, Anne Zeba, find that? I mean, it's an astonishing piece of information. And weren't they wonderful, the Mirapols, Anne and Abel Mirapol. In fact, the royalties from Strange Fruit and the house where, where I live, those songs and a few others are, are what the family lived on. They, In my eyes, they're real heroes, that couple, because they disciplined these two kids who... You know, we're in a state of shock. They've been passed from institution to unwanting, uh, unwilling relatives. And finally, they found this loving couple who hadn't been able to have children themselves. And not only did they discipline them, but they showed them equal amounts of kindness. And they taught them that their birth parents were not to be hated. They brought them up to have respect for Ethel and Julius because they're the people who gave them life. And in my view, that is such a, an unbelievably fine balance that it, it, they, they never allowed them to turn their parents into martyrs. But nonetheless, they respected that they're the people who gave them life. I think they must have been amazing. As their elderly gentlemen now, how did they greet you? <laughs> well, it's it's really interesting um, because I didn't want to be in their pocket in case they didn't like what I'd written. And they clearly didn't want to get too close to me. They were far more worried because so many people have written about their mother. In the 70 years since her death, she's become an artistic icon. Angels in America by Tony Kushner, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, that wonderful opening line, it was a queer, sultry summer, the summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs, paintings and notice they're all of Ethel not Julius because he's just straightforward so I understand why they didn't want to get too close to me but actually uh, since my book was published we've become friends and just last week I went to see Michael I wanted to see them both but I couldn't somehow organize myself and Michael's just turned 80 and they are the most intelligent I mean it's it's inappropriate for me to comment on, on how delightful they are, but take it from me, they are. The other book of yours that I've been reading, and um, it had an emotional effect at all, is based on the 1930s, but here. The book with that glorious title, That Woman. Now, who is that woman? Who was that woman? Well, I think you know, Wallace Simpson. 
uh, what intrigued me when I started writing about this, before the whole industry of writing about Wallace, I mean, I hope it doesn't sound immodest, but I, I am thrilled that I think my research has completely changed the agenda. And since my book, there have been dozens of others following because I decided that only men had written about Wallace and surely there must be another version of events. She seemed to have sprung fully formed upon the British stage, aged 41. But, you know, what happened to her until 41? So I went to China. I was interested in all of that. But well, my why, most... did you go, why did you go to China? Had she been in China? She was in China when her first marriage was in trouble. Before she married Ernest Simpson, she was married to Wynne Spencer, and that didn't work from day one. And he was serving in the Far East, so she went to try and see if she could patch up the marriage, but she couldn't. It, it was just a disaster. But she she had what she called her lotus year, um, where life was good, too good for a woman. And she realized that if she was ever going to make anything of her life, she had to divorce and start again. And she met Ernest Simpson. Now, um, Ernest Simpson was already married, but after the divorce from Wallace, Ernest married again. And that was what intrigued me. Here's this sort of bowler-hatted, pinstripe gentleman that everyone thinks is so correct. And he was in a way, but he had four wives. So by the third wife, who was a school friend of Wallace. He had a son born in 1939, who I discovered goes by the name of Aaron Solomons. He was christened Henry Child Simpson, but he ditched that. He went off to Israel. He learnt free diving. He was a wild spirit, a lovely eccentric man. I just went off on a whim to Mexico, lived in the Mexican desert with a man I didn't know, risked life and limb. And, and honestly, that's a whole book um, about how terrified I was in the Mexican desert with a strange man, but how lovely he was. And he led me to 15 letters that completely changed the whole agenda of what we know about Wallace. How? How? Yeah. Well, um, if you're much married, it's great for a biographer because there are lots of stepchildren and, you know, second cousins and stepwives and all the red stepmothers. I mean, anyway, I eventually found these letters that Ernest had left his fourth wife and his fourth wife had left her daughter. And in these 15 letters written from Wallace to Ernest, the man she was publicly accusing of adultery, publicly saying how she hated, in fact, still loved him, regretted that she was being forced to divorce him, forced to marry this man who was king. And the prevailing narrative was always, oh, he gave up everything for her. Wallace believed she was the one who'd given everything up for this child who wouldn't grow up who she and Ernest privately between them called Peter Pan. And nobody knew the king or the Prince of Wales as he was previously better than Wallace. And she knew he was a deeply flawed and troubled adolescent who didn't want to grow up and didn't want to face his responsibility. And what was her motivation? I mean, even now, um, the royals, I mean, the, the American coming in again, divorced American. What did Wallace want? Did I mean, you, you, you read this stuff. And she, did she want to be royal? Did she want to be no, HRH? No. I, I 
so well once it got that far she didn't want to be humiliated by not being hrh once her husband was the duke of windsor hrh that was a real public slap it was effectively exiling them because if nobody could curtsy to her without royal initials they could never come back to england but before all of that she was i believe trapped because Edward, as I call him, not David, um, threatened to kill himself, to slit his throat if she didn't marry him. She didn't want to marry him. She wanted to hide in China where she'd been before. She didn't want the responsibility of opening schools and factories. She wanted a leg up in society, a bit more money, a few jewels, nice fur. And he gave her all of that. He set her up with a trust fund. She didn't actually want the marriage. She wanted to go back to, to lovely Ernest with all the security he offered and no demands, but a bit more money. So, you know, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> if you play with fire, you get burnt. And Wallace was an arch manipulator. She manipulated the situation. She was greedy. And she ended up unable to get out of the situation. And anyone who knew them in later life from post-war onwards said she humiliated him because she felt she was the one who'd given up her good name, who'd given up her privacy, who'd given up everything. So it's, it's not the story we were all brought up to believe. I remember interview, doing an interview years ago on the radio about this couple. And someone scandalously said, um, well, of course, she wasn't going to be a mother, you know. There are many variations. And just because I think Wallace knew she couldn't have children. But I do believe that she probably um, had a piece of equipment missing, probably some sort of. And I've talked about this with with doctors. Probably she didn't menstruate. And so she knew she couldn't have children. And that's what enabled her to have a good time in China without any fear of getting pregnant. Because don't forget, in, in when she was in China in 1928, to get pregnant was terrifying because you couldn't have an abortion. You might die. And there was no contraception available, worth speaking of. So how was Wallace able to have an apparently free and easy lifestyle and I think it's because she knew that she wasn't able to have children and there's a lot more evidence along those lines in in my book because she constantly went to see doctors about things she thought was wrong and and it's been explained to me that that's a typical symptom of women who know that um uh, they can't have children. And, and the way Wallace responded was to make herself as feminine as possible, partly to diet, partly to dress in a feminine way. But the most important thing was always to have a man in tow on her arm. And that, to me, is the psychological explanation of what she wanted. She wanted to be confirmed as a woman even though she couldn't reproduce and uh, reproducing and becoming a mother is is ob obviously uh, the, the greatest evidence you can give that you're a woman. What, having written the book some time ago, but um, we've had, we've really had a surfeit of royalness. Um, do you have a view of royalness? Well, Wallace certainly was not it. 
I always <laughs> say I have not written a royal book. And I, I stick to that uh, uh, because although Wallace brushed against the royal family or all interestingly to me she brushed against the establishment and she really didn't understand it the circles in which she moved were much married much divorced anything was okay gay relationships were fine and and she was fine with all of that so I think that was so alien to the establishment in Britain at the time and she didn't understand that it's a fabulous book. I mean, um, I think, wasn't it her husband who said, oh, she's a cutie? And Noel Coward said, we don't want Queen Cutie. Um, <laughs> Noel Coward said, we should have a statue to Wallace Simpson in every market town because thanks to her, we got the better brother. And we sure did. <laughs> and he had a best friend called Fruity? Yes, Fruity Metcalf. Fruity Metcalf, who... Eventually, I mean, that's a very interesting relationship, and I'm not going to um, go into that here. But uh, he uh, was so appalled by Edward's behaviour in 1940 when Edward was sent back to France. And one of his jobs as Duke of Windsor was to oversee the retreating British troops at Dunkirk. And what did he do instead? He... Um, he he was so concerned for Wallace's birthday on June the 19th. We're just coming up to the anniversary of Wallace's birthday. He bought her this state-of-the-art brooch from Cartier, the flamingo with a retractable leg that everybody is so familiar with. And he was busy organising the birthday present and then getting his wife safely out of dangerous Paris when his job was to go to the beaches and oversee the evacuation of thousands of, of British troops and try and get them safely back to England without being bombed. And Fruity Metcalf was utterly appalled, quite rightly, by that, that sort of behaviour. Craven, um, uh, you know, he was just beholden to Wallace at, at that point. It's a remarkable story. Two books I've been talking about, the Ethel Rosenberg biography and That Woman both by the splendid Anne Seber. Good to see you again, Anne. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for talking about two of my favourite subjects. I'm David Freeman. This is the Author Archive Podcast. <laughs>